Today's TribCast is presented by the Texas Cultural Trust. Learn the benefit arts education can have on your child and see if your school is an arts-rich environment at artcantexas.org. Texas Talking Oh, what was that that you said? Texas Talking Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking tell me who can you trust when Texas guys Hey friends, this is State Representative Terry Canales, and I get to do the TribCast intro about as often as Evan Smith visits the Rio Grande Valley. Next to never. Thanks for coming down last month, Evan. Stay tuned for your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the first week of September. We don't know where Evan Smith is, but I doubt it's the Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> uh, I'm here with executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. And health reporter Edgar Walters. Hey there. Hmm, that was a little low-key. <laughs> Nobody had any good jokes for me this morning? No, Canales got in the best line. That's it's true. true. Usually there's instant commentary from Evan on the intro. So. I know, when right. he's not here, we all have to yeah. just sit here silently. <laughs> uh, all right, well, let's talk about the big news of the week, and that is these most recent Texas polling numbers um, put out by the Washington Post and SurveyMonkey. Um, showing some pretty interesting Texas figures that I still am not sure whether we believe or not. Patrick, you want to fill us in on the numbers? Sure. So the Washington Post and Survey Monkey commissioned this, uh, I believe it's an online poll of all 50 states looking at the presidential race in all 50 states. And in Texas, uh, they found that in a four-way race, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Clinton was actually uh, either tied or ahead by one point, and then in the in the two-way race, she was either tied or ahead by one point. But she in any tied case, tied in the four-way, basically, and one ahead in the yeah, two-way. One ahead, basically, yeah, one percentage virtually point. A, you know, a dead heat in either scenario right. here in Texas, uh, which is you know obviously the tightest margin we've we've seen yet in the very little public polling we've seen of Texas. I mean, we've seen uh, Trump up by six points, seven points, eight points. Uh, still, some very alarming numbers if you're Republicans, but to see it uh, you know this tight, virtually tied, I think was more than alarming. Um, and again, I mean, I, you could kind of pick apart the methodology if you want, but it, it certainly continues to fuel Democratic hopes that the state is headed in the right direction for them. And so how does this particular poll work? I mean, you know, and how much do we believe it? Obviously, you know, this is a state that's traditionally super Republican. This poll would is a landmark poll if it's accurate. What yeah, you-, you know, they polled 74,000 people nationwide and they're... 5,000 in Texas? Yeah, what they were trying to do was get enough a a sizable enough sample that they could say, here's what's going on in each of the states. And, you know, honestly, I think Texas was probably a side issue for them. I think they're probably looking, you know, more interested in swing states, you know, kind of like the campaigns are. But the Texas thing kind of stuck out. Utah jumped out out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, uh, You know, Texas hadn't voted for a Democrat for president since 1976. It voted for Jimmy Carter. It hadn't voted for a Democrat in a year when a Republican won mm-hmm. since 68, when they voted for, when we voted for Hubert Humphrey over um, Richard Nixon. So, you know, the state's been overwhelmingly red for years on the presidential thing for about half that time, the last 20, 22 years um, in statewide elections of our own. It seems unlikely that a Democrat would win in that statewide race or another one, but eventually they will. Um, yeah. And if this polls eventually, you know, people have been saying eventually for like you know well, decades. This is one of those things where if you look at this poll, you say if this is right, a lot of other things have to be right. And you know, if I was uh, on the ballot and I was a Republican in something that was either a swing district or even a narrowly Republican district, I'd be nervous about this. If Absolutely. I was a Ken Sheets yeah. or a Cindy Burkett 
or a Linda Coop or a Rodney Anderson or a J.M. Lozano. There's you know about nine seats where if you're a Republican incumbent and you're looking at the race above you and you're not getting much umbrella protection from Trump. Yeah. Um, One of the specific details I saw from this poll is that while Trump is doing slightly worse among men than McCain did eight years ago, Trump is losing women like yeah. crazy. I mean, he's below 40 percent among women, whereas McCain won a narrow majority of, of women. Um, you know, I mean... Is that something that really, to me, that's sort of like the riskiest, whether or not they're within one percentage point. To me, that was the biggest signal. Sure. Yeah. I think if you dig down into the data a little bit, if you look at those demographic groups, that's where the the, la- the loudest alarm mm-hmm. bells were. Right. And I think to be clear, we're talking about McCain because Texas didn't have exit polls last presidential cycle right. with why Mitt Romney. Is, yeah. Why was that? Why did Texas not have exit polls they last time They do around? exit polling where the media pays for it and the media wasn't. Oh, we've gotten cheap. <laughs> we've gotten cheap well, since you know, then. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, one of the interesting things about exit polls is if we were a swing state, we would all be really interested in right. it you know if it if you're not a swing state yeah. it's really just political science and you know so why'd we pay for it a lot it of no news way. organizations won't pay for political science mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah well can we also talk about the trustworthiness of this poll i mean five thousand sounds like a decent sample size but i was taught i think at one point to be extremely skeptical of online polls well then you should be skeptical of the texas tribune's <laughs> polls too <laughs> yeah I, you know the methodology is changing and the, and the you know where the voters are is changing. You know, when Gallup was doing this originally, you could reach 98% of the, you know, 98% of the people that you called would answer the questions. You know, by calling that, their home phones. Yeah, by calling their right. landlines at home. Now, if you're doing a complete, you know, a phone-only poll, you do some mix of landlines and cell phones. Um, you have a huge rate of people who don't play, and so um, a lot of organizations. Um, reputable and not in in polling are seeing, you know, well, the internet seems to be where everybody is. Is there a good way to poll them? Yeah. We use uh, YouGov and Polymetrics um, through the University of Texas and have been pretty satisfied with the results. This is, SurveyMonkey is a little bit different. You send people a uh, an invitation to take part in a poll and, you know, everything depends on how well you have uh, sorted the people you're going to send the invitation to, and then what the response rate is. Um, I don't think it's automatically a bad poll, um, but it's got a, you know, this is a weird result. Yeah. Well, a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook, that you can shoot any questions our way. Um, you know, obviously, th- these poll numbers, whether you believe them or not, bring additional questions about Clinton's candidacy in Texas. Um, Patrick, who were you out on the trail with last night? Sure. So uh, Ann Holton, the wife of Democratic vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine, um, was in Dallas uh, on Tuesday, and she was originally supposed to be there for fundraising. The campaign ended up putting tacking on two, uh, I would call them public events. They were both kind of roundtable discussions with local community leaders on issues like education, uh, foster care specifically. There was some state rep- uh, involved in the second discussion. Um, and, you know, I mean, very, very small move. Obviously, not either the vice presidential candidate or the presidential candidate herself coming here and doing public events, um, but certainly a small move. And I think it certainly reflects, um, you know, a slightly kind of sharpening focus on the state by the Clinton campaign. I think right now, the big question in the home stretch um, is not necessarily whether they're going to make like a serious play for Texas, um, but whether they're going to continue and maybe increasingly make the kind of very small moves like they did yesterday, where they at least kind of put, you know, put a little attention on Texas, a little flag in may- the sand, maybe yeah. make Trump feel a little insecure here in Texas, um, kind of what they've already done in Georgia and Arizona, where it seemed like they had some very strategic organizational right. announcements just to kind of uh, flag the state for Trump and make him feel 
maybe the need to play defense. And it worked in those states. I think they sent the Trump campaign sent Mike Pence to Georgia for mm-hmm. a day. Trump's been in Arizona, obviously. And so I think to, what's, what's to watch is whether those small moves are going to start cropping up more and more here in Texas in the yeah, home stretch. Whether they're way ahead of uh, Trump or not, they're making the kinds of moves you would make if you were way ahead. A lot of this is positioning. Right. It's just sort of like, you know, we're so far ahead of this guy, we're going to campaign in Texas. We're going to campaign in Georgia. Yeah, sticking yeah. it to him. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I did think it was interesting. There was a fundraising email out from Greg Abbott this morning. <laughs> uh, it was this morning or last night, basically saying, right. have you seen that Washington Post poll? You the know, gasp at the beginning is the most important part. <laughs> yeah. <I don't> know. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's you the know, fundraising first sentence, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, you know, within, could it be within 1%, you know, oh, 1% yeah. percentage point, you know, please donate to me. I thought this was interesting because, you know, Ross always points out, look, they'll take any opportunity to fundraise. Sure. They don't, you know, I'm not sure they really think that Texas is in play for the Democrats. Right. But by sending out an email like that, you're sort of implicitly saying, you know, you're not shitting on that poll. You're basically saying, hey, look at this poll. The problem for Republicans <laughs> in Texas is um, that their voters think they've got it in the bag. And so mm-hmm. they've constantly got to tell their voters, you can't let up. Right. And, and, you know, the second line or the second paragraph of that thing was um, conservatives are going to sleep. Yeah. And you guys let their guard you know, down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, even if you don't think, you know, and he hadn't said this, but even if you don't think Trump's going to win this thing, um, you've got to be there for yeah. the other Republicans down on the ballot. ballot. Yeah. You know, all the yeah. down ballot judges and the legislators and everybody else. And yeah. I, I thought the, the funniest semi-paradox paradoxical aspect of that email was the fact that it was like, you know, Hillary Clinton win the Hillary Clinton can win Texas and whatnot. And uh, there was no mention of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you I know, know. Typical How do we not fashion, yeah. you know, is like, so, you know, Let I think me that, fundraise that and email not kind mention of Donald embodied yeah. multiple things. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, uh, a question from uh, Marie on Facebook. Uh, does the recommendation by the Dallas Morning News, uh, this recommendation meaning they endorsed Hillary Clinton the first time they'd, they'd endorsed a Democrat since, what, World War II FDR. or something? Before, before World War II. She asks, uh, does that recommendation reflect the mood of the state? I think it reflects the mood of the editorial board of the Dallas yeah. Morning News. Well, I think it reflects you perhaps know. the kind of mood of uh, the more moderate Republican part of the mm-hmm. state, which I think is f- fair to describe the Dallas Morning News well, editorial board as moderate. The, the day Republican. before, they had a big editorial that said Trump's not a Republican. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they were um, completely derisive of him and basically were saying, you know, there's not a choice in this election if you're looking for a Republican. And then the next day, today, they came out with the Hillary Clinton endorsement. But, um, you know, actually the stronger statement in some ways was what they said about Trump yesterday. Yeah. And, and you know, this is one of those interesting he's not, things. What did they say? He, basically, he's not conservative. We can't endorse him because he's not a true Republican. He's not conservative. He's not well-balanced. He's not, you know, it was just, you know, not wrong in every mm-hmm. possible way is kind of what they said about mm-hmm. him. It's generated a lot of conversation. I don't know, you know, that people pay that much attention to newspaper endorsements when they're trying to decide how it is that they're going to vote. But as a conversation item and as an institutional player of some kind, you know, this is this is kind of an interesting piece of the conversation. Even the Dallas Morning News is kind of how it starts. Right. All right. Well, I want to put uh, politics in the rear view for a moment and switch gears and talk about something that obviously is an issue that I care about a lot, and that's um, maternal mortality. Edgar um, really had an interesting story this last week about some new findings in Texas on uh, on the maternal mortality numbers. What are we learning? Uh, we're learning that more and more mothers or new mothers or women who it also includes women who had unsuccessful pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, are dying. So, Emily, I just wanted to take this opportunity to say I'm so glad you're not a maternal mortality. <laughs> so that's like, yeah, she's, the girl, yeah. she's the girl who lived. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
And I should also start by saying, uh, so there have been a couple of studies that have pointed out a really um, dramatic increase, I think is fair to say, in the maternal mortality rate, although the raw numbers are still quite low. Um, A national study recently found um, around 2011, 2012, the numbers jumped from somewhere around 75 maternal deaths a year to about 150. So maybe from the raw numbers, that might not sound like a lot, but it's also a huge spike in the Right. Yeah, the fact that anybody dies in or around childbirth in the you know a first world country. Right, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. I mean, people. I think people don't think of women as dying in childbirth anymore. It's right. just shocking, and it's not something that happens in for any first world country except the U.S. Is we're the only place where it's on the rise, and Texas seems to be the state where it's rising the fastest. So um, definitely troubling. Um, but the interesting thing, though, was so after this national study com- came out, there was this state task force report that sort of looked into the causes of these deaths. And the thing about maternal mortality is that it's a really sort of open-ended question, like what really is a maternal death? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what these researchers found was that basically by taking a pretty broad view of saying what is killing women in the year after their pregnancy, um, they found some really surprising things. So, um, you know, the usual indicators like heart problems, blood pressure issues, preeclampsia, these sort of pregnancy-related hemorrhage, pregnancy-related causes are, you know, remain to be a problem. But actually, drug overdose and suicide are kind of surprisingly common mm-hmm. um, among women. So, uh, yeah, some troubling findings. I think researchers and state policymakers are doing some soul-searching there's been a big outcry in, res- you know, in response to these studies, people saying we need to expand health coverage, get more women enrolled in health insurance. Um, yeah, we have a I mean, there has been sort of this, you know, Democrats immediately pounced on these numbers and said, you know, basically that Republicans have blood on their hands here because right. they have really, you know, continued to curb funding for women's health care. They've, you know, basically effectively pushed Planned Parenthood clinics out where a lot of women received prenatal care. You know, it's uh, the numbers actually and the, the causes behind some of these um, deaths don't necessarily line up, you know, although some of the takeaways from experts were that these, you know, the, the cuts may have exacerbated, you know, women's Sort of hit your political wagon yeah. to the... To right. The, I, mm-hmm. I think if right. you talk to these experts, a lot of them, frankly, are, you know, they work for organizations that support um, these really, like, left-leaning policy agenda. I mean, they, they're people who are on board with Medicaid expansion. They're on board with funding Planned Parenthood. But mm-hmm. these researchers will tell you it's actually way too simplistic to say... Yeah, Cuts the legislature to did X. Right. Have killed a hundred more women a year. It's just, um, it's a it's a complex problem. There's a lot of factors at play here. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is, yeah, I mean. Um, I mean, they say it's, you know, these cuts are certainly part of the discussion. Right. I mean, I think some of the interesting findings were, you know, right, like you said, substance abuse and mental health right. I- issues being a problem, um, that, that black women are far more at risk than, than you know, white and Hispanic women in right. Texas. Was there some geography to it inside the state There that you could really read? Um, yeah, they broke it down by county in the task force report. I mean, you kind of see sort of trouble 
zones, you know, East Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, sort of places that have historically had public health challenges, high rates of poverty. High rates of poverty, high rates of African-Americans, particularly in East Texas. But also those are the regions that have been hardest hit by some of these, you know, cuts. Uh, A question from Cassidy on Facebook. Will these numbers actually influence legislation and an increase in women's health funding? Do you expect these studies to be brought up before the legislature in January? I think they'll be brought up. Um, And, you know, I think the sort of the tone going into this legislative session has been, um, you know, Republican leaders looking for budget cuts basically anywhere they can find them except in health and human services. They've been very clear to say we're not going to cut foster care. We're not cutting cutting HHSC to the extent that they're promising that now. So, so yeah, I think um, it's part of the conversation has influenced that. you know, whether this would have really pushed any sort of big policy agenda, like whether this will lead to Medicaid expansion, color me extremely skeptical. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, if you don't unlikely. have a, if you don't yeah. have a straight causation, I mean, how does a legislator say if you put a dollar here, then that will happen? Right. And if you can't make that kind of a direct right. linkage, it's it's really difficult to justify a particular kind of spending. Well, and, you know, there have been conversations around increasing funding for different types of health care for years in the right. legislature, and that's that has not been, they've not made these these cause and effect, you know, decisions. Right. I mean, there would be conversations, there are consistent conversations about if you expanded access, you know, to, to birth control for low-income women, you wouldn't have, you'd have fewer abortions, which in theory is a stated position of the right, but that hasn't promoted them or prompted them to, you know, spend more money right. on birth control. So, um, well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think these numbers have been really, really jarring and have prompted a lot of inf- interesting conversations, but I doubt there's any kind of fundamental change at the legislature, correct? Yeah, I agree with that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's move back up to North Texas for a minute. I'd like to talk about uh, the case of Susan Hawk, the Dallas County DA, who has now resigned to t- uh, to take care of her own mental health. You know, she's, I guess, had to step back uh, a couple of different points, you know, during her, her career to seek treatment. What's the, what's the latest? I mean, this is finally the big push in a resignation. What politically does it mean? She resigned, um, uh, I guess, a week after the date where she could be replaced on the ballot. So, You know, the way this works is the governor appoints um, someone who serves out the rest of the term until the next general election. Had she resigned before August 26th, is that the right date? Yeah, a week ago, roughly a week Mm -hmm. ago, yeah. Uh, Had she resigned before that, then Greg Abbott would have been able to appoint someone and also put the race on the ballot in November. Because she resigned after that date, he'll appoint someone who will apparently serve until the next general election yeah. in 2018. So if there had been – if this person had gotten to be on the ballot, it would have been on the November ballot. Right. So, I mean, how much, you know, political sort of brinksmanship was there? Well, basically? Republican governor makes an appointment in a Democratic county that holds for two years instead of for four months. Right. And voted against him in 2014, uh, yeah. correct? Right. Yeah, I mean, right. Democrats yeah. are crying. I mean, they're very, being very open about how upset they are with how this has played out. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a statement from uh, Clay Jenkins, the right. Dallas County judge basically saying you know we, we wish her the best we hope she gets better but but yeah <laughs> but she played, this kind of played yeah. out you yeah. know in a more political kind of fashion in terms of the 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 sequence and so i think we're going to hear a lot more of that and obviously politically dallas county is just a very important part of the state uh for the, for the Democrats. Right. right. So. I mean, you know, it's not, I guess, surprising that she would have, you know, played this out. I mean, given that she felt the need to resign, although she was very reluctant to resign for a long time, wasn't she? I mean, this has been going on. I feel like the saga has been going on. It's for, been going for, on so long. The Dallas Morning News was keeping a tally of her absentees and, mm-hmm. you know, days here, days away, yeah. you yeah. know, and sort of here's the here's the 
2015 number. Here's the 2016 number. Um, it's it's been a problem for a long time, and you know you uh, a couple of effects of this. If you if you don't have that race on the ballot, that kind of race is a draw. Mm-hmm. And in a county where the DA, whoever it is, whether it was Hawk or Watkins before her, has been big news for a long time. If you put that on the ballot, you're going to draw out people from both parties, and presumably you're going to draw some Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republicans are trying to win a bunch of races up there, you know, uh, from Trump through a couple of statewides on down to those four or five House races that I mentioned. So from the Republican standpoint, this timing's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who do you think that Abbott will appoint? I haven't seen many names. Um, I saw one story a few days ago in anticipation of this, citing some people who are already within the office, right. uh, potentially the person, I don't recall the name, who has been handling already handling day-to-day duties. Mm-hmm. I imagine Abbott will make a non-controversial appointment, um, not just because that's in his nature, but also just because of the, the kind of politically charged climate we just mm-hmm. talked about. Do you yeah. think something somebody like a Dan Branch would ever <laughs> consider the gig? I, you know, no. I, you know, I think he would probably, you know, last time we saw Dan Branch, he wanted to be AG. I don't know that he's changed his mind. <laughs> yeah, right. That there still may be an opportunity right. for him yet. Well, and, you know, he's, you know, the AG's office that he sought is more of a civil lawyer, which is what he does in his practice. This mm-hmm. is a criminal lawyer job. Right. Um, a question from Will on Facebook. Has this move, do we know if this move with her has cost the county any money or will, you know, will, you know, not having an election? I mean, could any of this be, could the, the county be on the dime for? There's not yeah. an election here. Uh, right. You know, yeah. it was either it was either going to be part of the already scheduled general election in November or part of the already scheduled elections yeah. in 2018. Right. There's not an extra yeah. election. Although I suppose paying somebody for not being at work is costing. Sure. <laughs> well, that was actually, yeah. you know, that's that was actually fact. part of the and, conversation in Dallas yeah. for a while. Yeah. Right. And and to me, that's kind of the most interesting thing about this is actually the position that it puts Democrats in mm-hmm. because they obviously would like to criticize um, the job Susan Huck has done. But I think right. they also have to do so incredibly delicately because of um, ideological reasons you know that you want to be supportive of um if if expanding mental health services is part of your platform you want to be supportive of that if paid time off and sick leave is part of your platform right it's been really interesting i mean democrats took some heat in dallas from mental health advocates saying like you're unfairly politicizing this. So. Yeah, but eventually it kind of like, like if you look at the statement, like, you know, some Democrats put right. out yesterday, it was right. like, they basically just, they didn't get rid of the pretense, but like at first it was like, oh, you know, she needs to get help, she needs to get right. help. It's like, all right, maybe, you know, and give now, her a little more time. Yeah. And it's like, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like, well, there was a period where they were saying, you know, you should leave office and get help. And that seemed to be, you know, where a lot of them finally yeah. ended up. And mm. you're right. I mean, they, they were really uncomfortable right, with Right, but it. you don't want to be pushing for somebody to have to leave there, right? I mean, the whole, the Democratic line is like, let's get people the help they need and the time off that they need. It has put them in a very tricky spot. Right. Um, Dallas is also in a tricky spot regarding uh, regarding. Medicaid right now, uh, correct, Edgar? There are some big, um, th- some big federal funding dollars that um, that North Texas is, is in trouble over. Yeah, there's a new Medicaid expansion fight. Um, <laughs> although nobody, <laughs> nobody will say that yeah. out loud. Should have brought a party hat. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> this is why you invited me. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So basically, long story short, the Obama administration wants Texas to expand Medicaid, which would, you know, give may up to something like 800,000 poor Texans health insurance as part of the Affordable Care Act. Texas Republicans don't want to do that. Um, but the Obama administration has some leverage because they finance, you know, a greater part of this 
multi-billion dollar package that basically pays for Texas safety net. It keeps hospitals that treat uninsured people afloat. Um, and some of those hospitals in North Texas right now are looking to lose about $27 million um, because they're kind of stuck in this tug of war. Nobody will say that explicitly. Um, nobody's saying, like, because you didn't expand Medicaid, we're going to withhold this money. But basically, the Obama administration right now is saying Texas sort of improperly asked for all this federal money to pay for some hospitals. Um, that private, treat hospitals? Poor people. private hospitals? Private mm-hmm. hospitals that can sort of pool funding, transfer it to a local government. The local governments then ask for a federal match to those dollars. It's very complicated, but the effect is um, the Fed's feds saying, saying, you screwed up, you you did it wrong. And Texas is saying, wait, we have these emails that show you we were allowed to do this. You you gave us your, your blessing. You said we could do this until at least September 2017. What's going on? Um, the subtext here is that, yeah, it's this fight over Medicaid expansion. Um, it's so, another so way. So the feds of... would like for them to use Medicaid expansion instead of this program, and are either explicitly or implicitly pressuring them to do that. Is well, that that's reading yeah. between the lines? But yeah, that's I, that's how most people are taking it. Because I mean, in theory, you don't have to cover this uncompensated care if right. more people have health insurance, right? Right. I mean, you, you'll still. So the fed, yeah, that's the federal government's position. Is like, look, it makes no sense for us to be paying on the back end. We could just pay to give these people health insurance in the first place. Then we wouldn't have to pay hospitals for treating uninsured people. It just mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, of, there's still some reason why there's always going to be uncompensated care. Undocumented immigrants don't qualify for health insurance. There right. are people who just aren't going to get health insurance. Like There's always going to be a need for some of this safety net funding, but the Obama administration basically says, look, quit horsing around, take the money, give people health insurance with it, and Anyway, and and here they are kind of cracking the whip, I think, mm-hmm. it's fair to say. Well, we'll see what happens in the next legislative session. Uh, speaking of the next legislative session, Ross, uh, fill us in on the looming fight we can expect to see over pre-kindergarten. Uh, there was a new state report right. we reported on yesterday that basically says says what? Things that are going to be expensive. It's uh, Yeah, it's you know, this is one of those... Um, you know, for one of a nail things, they, they said in this study that these pre-K classes should be no bigger than 22 students per teacher. And if you do that, then you say, okay, how many kids do we have? It's just a math problem at that point. How many kids do we have divided by 22? That's how many teachers we need. What does a teacher cost? Who's going to pay for that? Have a budget fight. Um, so uh, Greg Abbott kind of eased into a pre-K program, uh, got the legislature to go along with a uh, a small-ish pre-K program that's now up for renewal. A lot of Republicans aren't crazy about the idea of pre-K. What does small-ish mean? Well, it means they didn't completely fund a pre-K program for every kid who was Mm -hmm. eligible for it. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um, they did... um, They'd stuck their toe in and, and, you know, begun... One of Abbott's priorities. Yeah, Yeah. they've begun edging the state toward a bigger pre-K program. Now, when you say things like 22 students per teacher, and if you say we have this many kids, you know, you pretty quickly can come up with, start coming up with numbers, and pre-K is expensive. Right, Hmm. right. So, you know, what does this mean then for, is this something that you think Abbott will, could he use this report for leverage? I mean... You're going to have to have, you know, so the, the funding fights in the legislature are shaping up now. So... Um, the state's lost a little bit of oil revenue. Sales taxes are not rising as quickly as they were, and in some cases are dropping. They're still pretty high, mm-hmm. but sales tax revenues are down. 
the state's not going to have as much money as it had last time. There's a legislative reluctance to use the $10 billion in the uh, rainy day fund. And so you're starting to get some pressure on um, agencies to save some money. You need to cut some money. You need to cut some money. As Edgar said, there's some big chunks of state government like Health and Human Services where they've said don't touch. you don't have to make any yeah. cuts. And then you've got these proposals to spend more money. There's some proposals to spend some money in uh, criminal justice um, on one end and to close some prisons on the other end. There's a conversation about whether we continue the increased border presence of the Department of Public Safety mm-hmm. to the tune of about a billion dollars. Right. Now, Abbott has another request here potentially for a full pre-K program that would cost X. All of these things are going to be you know, in competition for a relatively limited number of new state dollars in January. And I think we're just basically we're setting up the budget fines. It's still remarkable to me that pre-K is something that is controversial, but uh, it's godless, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, that that last session seems so far in the rear view, but what what I do remember from it is that this is one of the kind of few top policy areas where Abbott actually had to spend some political capital and still interesting to see how he navigates it this time around, especially if there's even less will. Yeah, refresh our memory. Wasn't there some letter that went around? (laughs) His fight was all inside his own party. I mean, the Democrats, you know, a lot of the Republicans were saying, yeah, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the Republicans were saying, you know, this is what that Castro guy did in San Antonio when he was mayor. Why are we doing this? Um, And not very happy about it at all. And, you know, they're not happy about the, you know, some of them are unhappy about the idea of taking kids away from their families this young. It's another, you know, you're edging into parental space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them, you know, think that uh, public education is big enough already. You know, there's a movement that started in Kansas, but it's spreading. And it's in parts of Texas where you hear people, instead of saying public schools, will say government schools. Mm -hmm. Um, This is just Uh, another year of government schools. Um, You know, there are a lot of um, ideological objections to it. (laughs) Yeah, right. 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 Uh, it's secular, you know, I mean, there's a, there are a bunch of objections to it, almost all on the conservative side. Hmm. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. If you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Ross, Patrick, Edgar, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Ooh, Texas talking. Texas talking.